Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is a psalm that fits into this collection of Egyptian Hillel psalms, a small collection spanning from 113 to 118. These are psalms that would have been used for the Passover celebration. Church history tells us that the first two were recited prior to the meal, and then the latter cluster of them during and afterward. So before we hear from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together, asking His blessing upon our study together this morning. Our Lord, we acknowledge that the mind is prone to wander, and we confess that our hearts are oftentimes captivated with the pleasures and enticements and distractions of this world, and yet here we encounter the living God, and may the joys and delights that are before us in studying Scripture cause all other things in this world to pale in comparison, that we would see here before us uh, the wonder of knowing you more deeply, uh, loving you more faithfully, and growing uh, in greater adoration as we press on, uh, filled with increased hope toward that heavenly home that awaits us in Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, and eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, You've probably heard this wonderful description of the Psalms by the Reformed Church Father John Calvin, who calls them an anatomy of every part of the soul. The Psalms reveal the heart of the reader. They help to shape the mind, inform the will, and direct the emotions. The Psalms really are a wonderful means toward growth and maturity in the Christian life. And when you're reading through a Psalm, one helpful thing that you can do is to read the last verse or the last line of a psalm to see where the psalmist is directing or guiding you as he writes. Now, both Psalm 115 and Psalm 116 that, Lord willing, we'll look at together next week, end with the same refrain, praise the Lord. It's that familiar phrase that's transliterated hallelujah. Now, this might sound like an obvious question, But what exactly does it mean to praise the Lord? 
And when we think of praising the Lord, we probably think of what we're doing right now, gathering in His place, singing hymns of praise and adoration to the Lord as we seek to lift His name up among us as we make Him great, listening to His Word and considering its calling upon our lives. And certainly every element of our worship service is directed toward that end of giving praise to the Lord. But even more than that, when we think of praising the Lord, it means that our entire lives, not just when we are here, but when we leave this place, our lives that are marked more and more with what we could call a Godward orientation. Praising the Lord, we could say, is learning to factor the living God into every part of my life. We could really argue that the theme of praise is a dominant note throughout the entire book of Psalms, running like a golden thread throughout the fabric of this book. In the same way, we could say that praise is to be the dominant note in the life of the Christian. Praise should characterize our lives this side of heaven and, of course, on into eternity. Praising the Lord is living in joyful response to who He is and what He has done. To praise Him is to live lives filled with increased gratitude because He has saved me from condemnation. He has been so kind to continue to provide for me, direct me in life, and preserve me to the very end until I reach my heavenly home. One Old Testament scholar puts it like this, the Psalms help us to see that the Word of God has the power to give you hope when you despaired, to bring you faith where your doubts once reigned, to replace the curse with blessing in your life, blessing that is from the God who hears and answers the cries of your soul. So how does this psalm, Psalm 115 in particular, help us toward that end of learning to praise the Lord with all of life, delighting in Him more and more. Well, first this morning, we learn that we are to praise Him by fixing our gaze upon Him. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Praise Him by setting our gaze upon Him. Now, verse 1 is really so rich that we could spend the rest of our time here on this single verse alone. But notice how the psalmist grounds all of life in the glory of God. Look there again. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And this really is, you see, a declaration of ultimate allegiance. At every point in life, even in the routine, even in the seemingly mundane, there is a crossroads that we face and a choice that is before us to either live for self or live for the glory of God. In every decision that we make, in every longing of our hearts, in every desire that we have, we are either living for ourselves or for God's glory. And I think this is a wonderful refrain that we could learn to practice, to recite in our own lives. Not to us, not to me, but to your name give glory. And you might sort of ask reflectively of yourself, is this a refrain that is true of me in my own life? And the psalmist goes on to give reasons why we ought to live for the glory of God, namely because of your steadfast love and because of your faithfulness. 
Now, there are many reasons that could be given as to why we should live for the glory of God. There are many supporting arguments that the psalmist could have given as to why we should live for God's glory. But notice how he grounds this charge in something that is wonderfully intimate, love and faithfulness. Now, his steadfast love is that little Hebrew word that you probably have heard before, the little word hesed, which has to do with covenant favor, kindness, goodness that God has shown toward an undeserving people. When we think of faithfulness, it has to do with the Lord's trustworthy nature. This is a theme that we'll see come up later in the psalm in just a few moments. But faithfulness has to do with constancy. Faithfulness has to do with consistency. The Lord is constant. He is faithful. He is reliable because He is unchanging. And so we give glory to God because of His kindness to save us from condemnation. And we give glory to God because of His faithfulness, His trustworthiness, His unchanging character. You see, to glory in something is to ascribe weight, value, worth, importance to that thing. And the larger that thing is to us, that is, the more it occupies our mind, the more that it fills our hearts, drives our emotions, the thing that we really think about when we have nothing else to think upon, the more it has a shaping influence upon us. Just think of the example of a planet or the sun from our own solar system. The larger the mass, the more gravitational pull it has upon you. Just think of any, probably any sci-fi movie that you've seen. When the ship gets too close to the star or the planet and gets pulled in faster and faster, When it comes to the Lord, we can never ascribe too much glory to Him. We can never ascribe too much weight or majesty or splendor. He is greater than anything you could ever imagine, and it is the glory of God, it is the weight and the majesty of the Lord that should have an impact upon everything else in our lives. This is the foundation that we are to build upon. And this is such an important foundation for the psalmist to lay because of what he turns to next, which is the mocking and belittling voices of others there in verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Now, we don't know the historical context in which the psalm was composed. We know that from the history of the nation of Israel, that there were many instances in which they faced mocking and belittling voices from others. Their profession, of course, was that they belonged to the only God, the highest Lord who ruled and reigned over the entire universe and who made them His special covenant people. And yet things didn't always seem to work out the way in which you might think in the lives of the Israelites. The Lord's judgment comes upon them and they are taken into exile in Babylon, facing the mocking voices of the surrounding people groups all along the way. And even upon their return from exile back into the land of promise, things are much less spectacular than you would have thought as they continue to hear those voices of derision, belittled over and again because things do not materialize as one might expect. And how many times in the life of the Christian are we ridiculed for our belief in God? The Christian goes through great hardship and great trial. 
It doesn't always seem like God is present as that tragedy unfolds. Perhaps someone close to you, a cousin, a distant family member, uses that as an opportunity to express his hatred toward God by mocking you for continuing to believe in God even in those hardships and trials. But the fact is, as we see in verse 3, the Lord is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Others may taunt, but they really have no ground to do so. They have no basis to question the very God who holds their life in the palm of His hands. He is not obligated to respond in a way that satisfies the curiosities or the objections of mankind. The Lord says in Isaiah 55 verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The finite can never contain the infinite, and there are certain things that belong to the counsel of the Lord alone that are not ours to know. And so to say that God is in the heavens does not mean that He is aloof. It does not mean that He is uncaring, but He is transcendent in His kingly reign and does not bow to the whims of mankind. He doesn't cave to our demands. He does not seek out our advice as He determines His eternal counsel. As the majestic King, He resides in a throne room that no one can ascend to. No one could possibly pull Him from His sovereign reign. He knows no rivals, and His purposes will stand, and He does all that He pleases in His most perfect and holy and wise will, and He does not need to answer to us. As we move along in this psalm, we'll continue to see this contrast that the psalmist is laying out here from the very beginning. It's a contrast between the arrogance and foolish voices of unbelief. They may be proud, they may be vocal, they may be presumptive and self-confident, but they will be shown to be fools versus the wonder of belonging to the Lord God who reigns on high. And this is a contrast that we see fleshed out more in the next section of this psalm in verses 4 through 8, in which we learn secondly this morning that we praise Him by laying aside idolatry. These voices of unbelief, again, they mock the worshiper there in verse 2, where is your God? But the psalmist here responds by essentially saying, okay, you want to go there? Let's look at your gods. Let's look at those little images that you carve and attribute little human features to them, bow down and worship, giving power to them. In the Scripture passage that we read earlier this morning from the book of Isaiah, he points out the foolishness of going into the forest and chopping down a tree and bringing it into your woodshop, chopping it up into various pieces, using some of it to warm your family on cold nights throwing some in the hearth to bake your bread or cook your meat, and then taking a piece of it and carving an image out of it, and then bowing down in prayer to it as though it can deliver you. Utter foolishness. And that's, of course, because there's nothing behind the images themselves. The practice at this time of history would be to carve images from wood or to forge them from stone, to overlay them with silver or gold, more precious elements. They would then conduct a ritual that was to awaken the divine presence in the image. Through some sort of ceremony, it was believed that you could activate 
this image. Just think of how you might get a new credit card in the mail. It's just a piece of plastic until you call the precious number that is placarded on the front of the card. And then as it becomes active, it gives you all sorts of power to fulfill your heart's desire. Who says we don't have idols today? But you see, once activated, they believed that the God could hear and could respond, that He could pour out blessings and curses to enemies, sending oracles to them. But what the psalmist is doing is pointing out the obvious fact. Those images are dead, just as the gods that are represented by them. It is the Lord God who is the only God, one God in three persons, as He has revealed Himself to us. Anything else is a fabrication of your own imagination. And then the psalmist in verses 5 through 7 describes those false gods. And as he does this, there's this implied contrast to see that while those idols, those false gods, do not possess these attributes, in fact, it is the Lord God who does possess such things in His character. Their gods cannot speak. In other words, they have no ability to offer revelation, to reveal their will. They have no sight. They have no capacity for moral observation or to impose a standard of righteousness. They have no ears. They have no ability to hear the prayers of their followers or, of course, to answer them. They have no sense of smell. In other words, there is no way to provide an acceptable sacrifice of atonement because they have no real authority. They have no hands. They have no ability to feel our infirmities, no touching hand of compassion or care. They have no feet. They have no ability to come to you in your need, but they can only move as the worshiper picks them up and throws them in a sack and takes them from one place to the next. And they make no sound in their throats. The more literal translation would be that there is no musing. In other words, there's no thought process that's there. You might think simply of how you think before you speak, hopefully most of the time, or you think before you make a decision in life. As routine and mundane as that is for you, the gods lack even that ability. And so there is this sevenfold charge that is brought against those idols as an indictment against them. Charles Spurgeon writes, the hand of an infant has more power than they do. A lowly insect has a greater ability at locomotion than the greatest heathen god. But here's the irony. Even though these are dead images, we read in verse 8 that this practice of worshiping false gods has an effect upon the worshiper. Those who trust them become like them. We become like that which we worship. That which we worship shapes what we are like. That which we worship determines the person that we are and that we are becoming. The biblical scholar Greg Beale has a wonderful book on a biblical theology of idolatry in which his study throughout the pages of Scripture and looking at idolatry leads, to him to, leads him to conclude with this helpful statement that what Scripture teaches is that what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. 
And that's exactly what's taught here in Psalm 115. To those who revere false gods, they resemble them for ruin. In contrast, to revere the true God is to resemble Him for restoration. Now, if that principle holds true, then the question for us to consider in our own lives is, what do I revere? What do I look to for significance, for purpose, for worth, for value, for meaning, for comfort? What do I believe that if I had that, I would be satisfied, I would be content? Maybe it's material stuff, like some possession. Maybe it's an experience that you long for. Maybe it's a certain level of financial comfort. Maybe it's that relationship that you crave, or acceptance in the right social group, or recognition for your achievements and abilities. Well, this is a question that I think each one of us would be wise to ask of ourselves at whatever stage of life we might be in. I think our young people are particularly targeted much more militantly in this whole area of idolatrous false worship because they are in a season of life in which the foundation upon which they are building their lives is still being formulated and established. And so if you're in that category as a young person, ask yourself, what are the things that I am prioritizing and therefore worshiping in my own life? As you think of a prospective spouse, are you overemphasizing appearance instead of the character qualities that Scripture prioritizes? Are you longing for acceptance in some particular social sphere in which you know that to gain access, you will have to become like them in a way that is displeasing to the Lord? You will have to lay aside the theology that you have been taught your entire lives by your parents and your pastors, and your elders, and your teachers, and all those that love you and care for you, you will have to lay those things aside in order to be seen as tolerant and accepting of those things that are contrary to the Word of God. And if you live for the approval of others, all under the guise of enlightenment, then you will become like them, angry, entitled, arrogant, self-absorbed, and more. Because at every point in life, we are either being conformed to the world or we are being conformed to the Word of God. And the agenda of the world is to undermine devotion to the Lord, to make us feel like we're the foolish ones for gathering and worshiping God, for studying the Bible, for going to Him in prayer. David Wells writes, Worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Instead, by learning to acknowledge the greatness of God, the glory of God, the splendor of the Lord, that serves to put you in the proper place, creating humility within your mind and heart in which there is an longing and a desire and a love to honor the great God and King who has saved you from your own foolishness. Greg Beale writes, a good self-image biblically defined 
is one in which people properly conceive of themselves as sinners, yet redeemed and newly created by grace in Christ. So this really is a masterful line of reasoning in this psalm that shows us the futility of trusting in idols, as the psalmist then turns next to direct the people of God to worship Him by trusting in Him. And this is the third thing that we see from the psalm in verses 9 through 11. We praise Him by trusting in Him. Now, the way in which this psalm is structured leads to verses 9 through 11 as the high point, the center point of this particular psalm, in which we are taught that trusting in the Lord is critical for cultivating lives of praise. Now, as I read these verses again, notice the antiphonal structure. In other words, you can envision how these verses at least would be used in public worship as the worship leader calls the people of the Lord to then respond, just as we do in our own call to worship here on Sunday mornings. And so, look there again, verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And so we see here a declaration on the part of that worship leader and a response on the part of the people. His declaration is a call for them to trust, and they respond by acknowledging that the Lord is worthy of trust because He is their help and He is their shield. Do not trust in the foolish things of this world, for to do so will lead you to become like them in their foolishness, verse 8. But rather, trust in the Lord, rely upon Him, put your confidence in Him. He is your strength. He is your defense. And then we come to this threefold division of the people of God, Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. There are different theories on why the people of God are broken up into these three varying categories, and we can't say with certainty, and much of it depends upon when this psalm may have been written, which we, again, cannot know with certainty. But if this was a psalm that was written after the exile, it could be that Israel are those who have returned from Babylonian exile into the land of promise. Of course, the house of Aaron are those who were from the tribe of Levi, given the task of leading the people in worshiping the Lord. And those who fear the Lord could be those who remained in the land of Israel during the exile, entered into a period of syncretism, but have seen the need to repent of such things and come back in devotion to the Lord. However we understand this threefold division, the point is to see that it includes or encompasses the entire covenant community. And notice the charge, whether you are young or old, whether you have been faithful or have had seasons of disinterest or complacency, no matter your past, come to Him and trust in Him, for He will never let you down and He will never forsake you. It would be a wonderful, I think, use of your time in the coming week to pull out your old 
concordance. Some of you still have those on your shelf. Or at least to go to um, your favorite search engine online and to type in trust or trusting in the Lord or some derivative of that and look through varying places of Scripture that speak frequently and direct us on how we can trust in the Lord more and more. Here are just a few samples from some other Psalms. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 56, verse 3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God I trust. I shall not fear for what can man do to me. Psalm 125, verse 1, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved, but abide forever. And as we move on in the psalm, we see fourthly in verses 12 through 15 that we praise Him for He has blessed us. We praise Him for He has blessed us abundantly. As the psalmist exposes the futility of idol worship, he returns now to the wonder of that covenantal intimacy that we have with the Lord. He remembers and He will bless us, verse 12. Now, blessing and remembering are intrinsically connected to one another. To speak of God's remembrance, as you've heard before, does not mean that when you go through a hardship or a trial, it's because somehow you've slipped God's mind, that He has forgotten or lost you somewhere along the way. This is the eternal, infinite God we're talking about. He cannot forget His own. Isaiah 49 tells us, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, for I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And so to say that the Lord remembers is to say that the Lord acts in the form of blessing because of His covenantal promises that He has bound Himself to. Our God did not need to enter into a covenant relationship with us but freely choosing to do so, he willingly binds himself to the terms of that covenant, which is to bless his people. And so, believe in God's promises. Know that he is trustworthy. He will remember. He will bless. We are, after all, talking about the God who's created the heavens of the earth, verse 15. Certainly, he will make good upon his promises and care for you. And so, we walk by faith, believing that our God is trustworthy and immovable. And again, we see this threefold blessing to Israel, to Aaron, to those who fear the Lord. All of God's people receive the wonders of His blessing. That term equity is a term that we hear probably much too frequently in our own time. Equity is sort of this driving ideology in academics, in corporate America. You want to talk about true equity, it has nothing to do with the shallowness of the things of this earthly life, but it's the fact that all of God's people receive the full blessings that are for us in Christ Jesus. And the primary blessing that we have that moves us toward praise and adoration 
is not the shallow and vapid things of this world, but it is the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ Jesus. It is the cleansing work of the shed blood of our Savior, and it's the glorious hope of that which awaits us at the end of this age. And this is for all who humble themselves and trust in Jesus. Again, to quote from Spurgeon, he writes, it is His nature to bless. It is His prerogative to bless. It is His glory to bless. It is His delight to bless. He has promised to bless, and therefore be sure of this, that He will bless, and He will bless, and He will bless without ceasing. Which then brings us to the conclusion of this psalm in verses 16 through 18, and our final point together this morning. And that is that we praise Him perpetually. We praise Him all of the time with all that we are. Just as He showers us with undeserved blessings in the Lord Jesus, blessing that we will never exhaust, blessing that will never run out, we long to turn to Him and praise and bless His name. And notice how verse 17 which is the second to the last verse, is a wonderful contrast with verse 2, which, of course, is the second from the top verse. In verse 2, it was the mocking voices of unbelief toward the people of God. Where is your God in the midst of your hardship or trial? But as the psalmist has laid out this contrast then throughout the psalm, exposing the foolishness of trusting in anyone or anything else besides the living God, the tables are turned. And verse 17 is actually a form of mockery toward those who do not praise the Lord, but persist in their foolish unbelief. The dead cannot praise Him, but go down in silence. And I think the charge here is for us to see the urgency of turning to God, the urgency of turning from the vain priorities of this world toward the Lord. Do not presume that you can live a season of life of self-indulgence and make things right with God later in your life. You do not know what tomorrow may hold, but rather heed the urgency of this psalm by trusting in Jesus and resting in Him alone for salvation. Those who live for this life alone will go down in silence. We might think of the words of Jesus when he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Someone may have the adoration and envy of millions, but the inevitability of death exposes the futility of the things of this world. There was a survey that was conducted recently of sort of older teenage and young 20-something-year-old girls young women, and it was a survey that was conducted both in Western countries and in Eastern countries. And of the varying questions that they were asked, one that stood out to me was, what is it that you aspire to do? It's sort of that age-old question that your parents asked you from a young age, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the number one answer in the West was a social influencer. I didn't even know that was a job. Apparently, if you get enough followers, it can be quite lucrative. I heard recently of a very tragic social influencer up in Canada 
who filmed herself skydiving and plummeted to her death. And she was lauded as going out doing what she wanted to do. It's a very existential approach towards life, isn't it? As long as she did what she wanted, we should applaud her. But even if you became a social influencer, or even if you achieved whatever else you think might bring satisfaction, how will that serve you when you stand before the living God? Are we living with an eye toward eternity? Is our hope fixed not upon the things of this world, but upon our need for the atoning work of Christ Jesus? Are we learning to live our lives before the face of God, the God who, unlike those false gods, has spoken in His Word, who does see into mind and heart and will bring all things to judgment on that day, who will hear the prayers of His people, who is pleased with the substitutionary work of His eternal Son and therefore all who are in union with Him, who cares compassionately and tenderly for us, and who is with us always to the very end of the age. This is the living God to whom we belong. And so, may we grow to learn that all of life is to be centered around the Lord our God. May we learn more and more to live with that constant awareness of His presence with us. May we desire to take Him into consideration with every decision, with every longing, with everything that we aspire in life, every hope that we look to. For praise is to be the dominant feature in the life of the believer in Christ. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of His Word and write it upon the hearts of His people.